Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you're joining us. We are going to be talking about the current state of dementia treatments, and we're going to find out what you need to know as the industry is always changing. Uh, but before I introduce our guest, I first want to welcome anyone who is new to our show. Um, this was started because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I just felt it was really important to connect people to services, products, and tools and information around the world. Uh, There's so much going on, and yet there's so little that we really know because of kind of lack of connection on a lot of levels. And so it's just been my privilege over the years to to talk with people at all different levels and spaces in the industry there. Um, Also, I want to give a shout out to the Mark Arneson Band. If you like the opening music, it's called Clarion Call. And you can go ahead and download that on any of your favorite music platforms. If you're not familiar with Alzheimer's Speaks, we do have a main website. Excuse me, my allergies are kicking in, and I just can't get them under control here lately. Um, But we do have a new website, and one of our pages is free educational resources. And there you will find all kinds of information from the radio show to Dementia Chats, where we talk with people living with dementia, to Dementia in the Arts, Memory Cafes, um, dementia-friendly communities, and so much more. So please go to alzheimerspeaks.com and check that out. We also have um, free public um, events that you can check on as well. We've got a couple of support groups that we do, and on November 11th, we'll be doing a free webinar with Volunteering for Seniors. And on December 8th, we've got one coming up in uh, Woodbury, Minnesota, sponsored by Artist Senior Living. That we're going to be talking about family gatherings and travel, and you know, how do you replace those difficult times with joy, and feel like everyone is is in sync there. Now, before I introduce our guest, we are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and we'll be right back. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. 
Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. I love those guys. They do such a great job reviewing things, and you can go to their site. Um, They have all kinds of videos that will help you, not only for dementia, but if you have a knee replaced or a hip replaced or uh, toileting, showering, uh, eating. Uh, it's just a, an incredible, incredible resource. <clears throat> now, today, again, we're going to be talking with Sharon Rogers, who is the CEO of Myriad, and um, she is really known worldwide as a leader and development strategist. Uh, in fact, she was the one that took basically Aerosteps from from birth uh, to basically uh, our drugstores. And uh, to me, that's a pretty incredible travel journey uh, to be the first one out there uh, with, a, with a product like that. I know my own mother was on Aerocept for a long period of time, and we really felt that she lived well, you know, um, with dementia for the majority of those 30 years. It was just the last three where the end stages um really came into play. So I am thrilled to to have Sharon with us today. She has um, really um, done some startups. She's, she's held a variety of senior executive positions, including CEO, uh, CMO, and president. And um, right now she has 35 years behind her of pharma experience. And she is, again, the CEO of Amiriad um, Pharmaceuticals. So, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. I know how busy your schedule must be. Thank you, Lori. I am happy to be here because we're talking about something that is extremely passionate to me, and that is the way that we can manage Alzheimer's disease over the lifetime of the patient. Exactly, exactly. Now, one of the questions I ask all of my guests, and I hope you don't mind this, but I always like to know if you've been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends by dementia. Uh, Interestingly enough, no. It has not come into my own family or my own circle of friends. Uh, I became touched by Alzheimer's disease when I started working initially very early on with this group of patients and their families. And when you do get involved at that level, it's hard to ever forget it, and it's hard to leave it because it's just a devastating illness. Exactly. Now, there's there's a lot of uh, ways, uh, you know, a professional could go when it comes to neuroscience. What made you decide to pick that career and then specifically zone in, you know, on dementia? Um, I actually came at this from a, a broader perspective of just clinical pharmacology. I was always interested in everything about the physiology and the medicine of how the body worked and how you could introduce uh, a foreign agent, uh, sort of fool around with one pathway, adapt it, adjust it, tweak it a little bit, and get a therapeutic response. So I actually made the study of drug development part of 
part of my work early on because it was just incredibly fascinating. When you move one pathway in the body, there are downstream effects on so many more. And it's um, intellectually stimulating, fabulously interesting, and probably the best choice that I could have made because I like all therapeutic areas. And when you drill down to the actual chemical reactions that are happening, you find that almost everything that you do to get a therapeutic response has other effects that may be unintended and may be also beneficial or, or, or maybe not, but it's just a very complex process and uh, it never stops being stimulating. Wonderful. Now, you know, everyone is wondering, why is it so hard to develop a drug that just works for Alzheimer's disease? Um, pretty much anybody you talk to is like, come on, just give me a pill. Let's get on with it. Why is it so difficult? Um, there are a number of factors, and I can break those down. Now, the first one is what do you want to do with your therapeutic treatment? Do you want to manage symptoms? Do you want to modify the disease? Uh, do you, are you hopeful enough that you want to cure the disease? Uh, there are many questions to answer. And the last oh, 15 to 20 years, the question has been more like how to modify the disease. And that's a very challenging question to ask because Alzheimer's disease isn't just one thing that happens. It's a composite of many things that happen. Some of them are wrapped into normal aging, but many of them are not. Some of them are wrapped into personal resilience, uh, educational capabilities, social environment, uh, access to health care. Alzheimer's is roughly 20 to 25 years in the making, so there's no single path that we can look at to say, okay, this is what's going to do it. This is the magic bullet that's going to change Alzheimer's disease and make everything wonderful. But we're learning over time that there are a number of small things that we can do. And the small things then later add up to big things, big things for patients, big things for caregivers. So recent developments in disease-modifying drug development, plus what we're doing now as far as symptom modification, all of this combined. And patients uh, with this disease should end up being on a number of uh, pharmacologic therapies to help get the best possible results. Agree. I, you know, I like that you talk about the variables because so often that's overlooked. And, you know, if when somebody is in the realm of dementia, they hear, you know, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one. But when you've met one care partner, you've met one when you're in one environment, you know, um, that can change things too. And there are mm -hmm. so many different triggers. There's so many different symptoms and everybody wants this, you know, um, 101 book for dummies, how to deal with dementia and what the symptoms are going to be. And they, they just want this straight track. And, you know, I've, I've stepped into this space in 2009 and, I mean, I don't think I've heard a similar story yet. I mean, there's a lot of likenesses, but no one, no one's story is cloned just like somebody else's. And there's so much to learn out there. And it also seems like there are more diseases and, and symptoms and theories that are popping up. And so, you know, the umbrella is kind of popped open. And it seems like there's a lot more spokes to even investigate of what's causing this and, you know, um, and, and then you add on top of that, 
you know, some people are lucky enough to get two and three types of dementias, you know, mixed together, complicated. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you personally zone in on on what you want to focus on when there's so much to choose from out there? Well, you make a very good point when you say it's complicated, and no one really likes to hear that because they think it's a way of sort of. Uh, Uh, wimping out on coming up with a path forward, but it is complicated. So uh, from a drug development perspective, what I do is I try to to really challenge myself to say, what question am I asking here? What do I want to see happen? Do I want to see cognition improve? Do I want to see day-to-day function improve? Do I want to see a change in the protein co- uh, concentrations of some something that is uh, supposed to be a biomarker but may just be a, a symptom of natural aging? What do I want to do? And then I go into my uh, scientist, put that hat on, and say, okay, this is what I want to look at. How can I strip away anything that's going to interfere with me getting an answer to this question? And design a study. And try to Mm -hmm. think, okay, how much is reasonable to strip away, but how much is inherent in the patient and the way they live every day that you simply can't strip away, that you have to consider. Uh, People people are not laboratory mice. People have very rich lives and a lot of other things going on. And you can't narrow the question too much. But can you narrow it enough to get an answer to your question about, Is my drug doing anything? Is my treatment doing anything or not? That is really the challenge with Alzheimer's disease, being specific about the question you're trying to answer and then not being distracted by other things as you try to get that answer. Well, interesting. You know, there's there's so many questions now, you know, with efficacy. And, you know, I know when you, I shouldn't say I know because I've never been in your shoes, but I'm assuming, you know, efficacy is a huge part of your whole process in terms of how are we going to weigh this out? How are we going to know um, if we're making a difference or not? And, you know, with the last drug, you know, that hit the market. I mean, it was just like a bomb went off and everything was polarized and people quit their jobs over saying, no, there's not enough proof. And how do you, how do you line that up, you know, from a, from a scientist development um, type stance to say, okay, this is standard in the industry because it seems like standards went by the wayside or, or something with this, with this last launch. I agree with you, and uh, and I'm going to answer that question, and I'm going to answer it by saying that it's always a risk-benefit analysis. What is the likelihood of getting a therapeutic benefit versus the safety issues? And when you look at the safety issues, you can't just look at them from what's in the clinical trial, which is a controlled setting, but you have to try to extrapolate beyond that. So if we go to that last approval, that sort of made everything explode and caused a lot of polarization, even amongst my colleagues. There was a lot of polarization on this for a number of reasons. One is because the efficacy was hard to measure and hard to see and could only be measured in a very tiny subgroup of patients. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Lori, in in point of fact, there were more than 12,000 patients who were screened for the clinical trials for this drug. 
12,000 mm-hmm. patients. Some were removed because they didn't have the right amount of protein in their brain. Some were removed because they had other medical conditions that made them higher risk. Uh, some were removed for, uh, because they couldn't tolerate the treatment as far as day-to-day or they couldn't comply with going in to get infusions. And um, by the end of the day, when they sliced out all the patients who couldn't stay in the study, and they actually worked through the patients who could stay with the study, from those 12,000 patients, there was a very small cohort of 289 patients that maybe benefited from the drug. So this is what got people upset. You start with 12,000, you end up with 289. And at the same time of that 12,002 of the people who got in, roughly 1,500 of them had a side effect called ARIA. So it's it's amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. Some of them had swelling in the brain and very small micro uh, bleeds in the brain. A patient was five times more likely to have that happen than to be in the group that had a measurable therapeutic benefit. So yes, that's going to polarize people across the board. If you dig down into the message though, the underlying message is still that this protein target was reduced and reduction of this protein target in some patients was associated with a delay in their disease progression. So that's when you go all the way back around to safety and you start, mm-hmm. okay, saying, okay, what is the risk relevant, relevant to the benefit? And Medicare and Medicaid services and most insurance companies also ask, and yes, what is the cost of that benefit given it happens in so few people? So you have three factors weighing in, and that gets into some very lively, often uh, unpleasant discussion amongst people. And uh, that has a lot to do with this launch. Was the launch handled in the best possible way? No, it was extraordinarily expensive. And uh, it it was um, not handled in in the best way possible. There are other drugs coming up that have a little bit better clinical profile that may be approved over the next few months for the same indication. And I'm going to guess, based upon what I know about the companies involved, that the path to launch will be a little bit more measured mm-hmm. and think about cost and benefit, safety and benefit. But uh, I, I cannot uh, uh, dissuade people who are polarized on uh, the, the biogen issue. It, it is real. Um, but at the same time, we did get a little bit of knowledge from that. That little bit of knowledge was that in the right patients, if you intervene at the right time, you can delay disease progression. It's just a question of who are the right patients. And when it's a cohort of 289 out of 12,000, it's a little hard then to see how you take that drug and you introduce it to a broad patient population who are not going to specialists, but are instead going to their, their family practice office. This is where most, most patients go for treatment initially is to their family practitioner. And how is that person supposed to be able to help a patient, that mm-hmm. person who's not a specialist, who doesn't have a large research uh, organization behind them, that doesn't have a lot of fancy equipment? How do you get benefit to those people? 
And that's the question that, that Biogen really can't answer. Yeah, that's a it's a tough one, and and that is mm-hmm. uh, I mean a big clearinghouse from twelve thousand to two eighty nine. Um, that's a very yeah. very small percentage out there, and I know, you know, for me, and again, I'm just talking personally, but if if I was looking at that, you know, for my own loved one, it, to me, it wouldn't be worth the risk, um, you know, with mm-hmm. that. But again, everybody has to make that for themselves, and like you said, the cost factor was so significant. You know, on that, and um, you know, I I just recently read an article, and I haven't vetted this, so keep this in mind, folks. But I had heard that somebody recently died from a, a blood um, blood brain bleed. They can't say for sure at this point that it was from the trial, but it's mm-hmm. you know it's suspect because that is one of the side effects and stuff with that. So I would think that that that's another. I hate to say a scare factor, but I mean, you're talking lives, you're talking humanity, you're talking real people Mm -hmm. here. And so, um, you know, we want to make the the best possible decisions. I know for, for me, when I had heard that people with like lifelong jobs quit their jobs over it, I mean, that just really made me stand up and, and look at things. The other thing that I, you know, I just see so many companies uh, focusing on the, the amyloid theory, and yet some of that has been disproved, is my understanding as well, through the Nun study and stuff. And, and there's, But there's so many other options that people are looking at. So let's talk about your assessment of the current state of, you know, Alzheimer's disease research out there. You know, what are your thoughts about the amyloid theory? Um, what we've learned from it and and what else is out there. Again, another fabulous question. I think the current state of research in Alzheimer's disease is good and I am optimistic. And I'm optimistic because instead of instead of people being so wedded to the amyloid hypothesis, uh, they are willing to open their mind to other types of protein interference and other factors in the disease. And I think that, again, Alzheimer's disease is complicated. There are many factors involved. Uh, we don't know. We, we absolutely have no reference to explain to us of all the old people or of all the people in the world how many have beta amyloid pathology and how many don't. And that's because most of the work in actually looking at uh, who has this pathology has been primarily involving patients who are already diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So I can tell you from my own experience, there are patients who die not from Alzheimer's disease but from other considerations that can have enormous amyloid plaque and tangle load. Tau proteins, other proteins, have what really looks horrible for an Alzheimer brain, and yet be completely cognitively intact at the time of their death. And there are other patients who can die of very severe Alzheimer's disease, and when you look at their pathology on autopsy, it's there, but it's not that significant. So knowing that, you can easily uh, consider the question about well, these other considerations must be equally important 
And I would agree with that, that other considerations are equally important. As we age, we accumulate a lot of proteins in our bodies. It is just one of the things that happens in aging. And since you mentioned I was 35 years into my business, it means I think about this every day, every day, because there's always something going wrong. Um, But we accumulate a lot of proteins. And a group of researchers now are looking at, okay, why are we, as we age, less effective at clearing out these proteins than we were when we were younger. And they're looking at the enzyme um, pathways that are involved in clearing out these proteins. Because when you do not, when we do not clear out those proteins, our body also has some fail-safe mechanisms in place that say, well, we haven't cleared out the old proteins yet, so we shouldn't make any new ones. And that feedback mechanism then stops us from making good, uh, well-structured, well-functional proteins to replace the ones that have become old and disfigured and less functional. And so we're not making what we need and we're not getting rid of what we don't need. This is part of aging. Stanton some Alzheimer's patients, but in neurodegenerative disease in general, whether it's ALS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or any other disease, there is this uh, phenomenon of a lot of uh, proteins that should be cleared from our body are collecting. And we need to be mindful of that and realize it's complicated. It's more than that. Do you have any questions about that part of it so far? No, I, I think it, it makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's very complicated. And um, I, like I said, it, it's way over my head in terms of, <laughs> All the details and and things that come into play, but but again, I think so often people don't realize that one part of the body affects another part of the body, and so even though you're zoning in on one thing, everything still functions together, and then that is going to affect how effective whatever it is you're doing is going to be. And I, I don't care if it's cancer, I don't care if it's a you know, a hippie replacing or Alzheimer's disease, I mean, the body works as one and it, it has mm-hmm. its own codes, like you said. And if it's saying, well, you know, we haven't cleared it out, so they're still there. We don't need to build, you know, we don't need to make any more, but you've got things in there that aren't functioning the way they were. It's not quite reading that. So it's it's definitely, definitely um, interesting. One of the things I wanted to, to ask you about when it comes to, um, you know, pharma companies as a whole, you know, you had mentioned earlier on there was managing the symptoms. There was, you know, trying to to modify the disease and then there was an outright cure. How do you think, because I think the general public is looking, they kind of look at cure. They don't really look so much at the modification and they look at the, the managing the, the day-to-day symptoms and they look at the cure. And, what I hear from so many people nowadays is they don't think there's going to be a cure in their lifetime, but what they're really, really wanting is something to help manage the symptoms today. What are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that what your research is telling you or um, is what I'm hearing when I talk with people around the world something very different? I think what you're hearing when you speak with people around the world is exactly the state that we are in. 
Um, my personal philosophy and my personal belief as, as a scientifically driven person is that a cure is not on the near horizon. Can we do things to modify? We're trying to do that right now, and we're finding small things that help modify. But symptom management, this is something we are always going to need from the way I see it. And we're always going to need, to need it because we cannot diagnose people quickly enough. As I mentioned earlier, many patients are finally seen by their family practice physician, and by that time, their disease is already in, in a low-moderate stage. So there's already quite a lot of pathology and a lot of deficits in memory and function have already developed, and that's why they end up going to the doctor's office. By then, most there's no evidence that disease-modifying therapies have any effect then because all the disease-modifying therapies have been studied in prodromal or very mild cognitive impairment, sort of a pre-Alzheimer's group of patients. So we don't know if any of those therapies will have any effect on the, the normal patient who goes into a normal physician's office and who is at a more uh, demented stage. That's number one. Two, even if you can modify, you're still going to have deficits in cognition and function. And those deficits, especially those in function, those are the ones that drive costs. Those are the ones that are difficult for caregivers. Uh, those are the ones that make the greatest impact. Uh, a group recently published a paper, and they were looking at what is the value of symptom management to society over the next 20 years. And the value to society was tied up in a reduction in disability-associated life years, plus general quality of life for the patient and, and the caregiver. And that cost, believe it or not, Lori, was estimated at $2.4 trillion Ooh. just in the next 20 years. So this tells you how important loss of function is and loss of cognitive capabilities. Even when you can continue to help someone be able to to make a sandwich, to dress themselves, to do their own toileting, to be able to stay home and not have to go into a nursing care facility. All of those things contribute to everyone's well-being, and you generally get that type of relief through symptom management. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I'm going to roll off, and this people might think, you know, doesn't really tie into pharma, but I, but I think it does. Um, but I don't think we've looked at it like that. And, and that is there seems to be a difference between pharma management and social management. And I think there's an overlap with science behind these two. But I, I also wonder if they merged together as a, as a program, as a therapy, if we would have increased outcomes. Um, and one of the reasons I say this is, um, again, street talk from people, um, is they're saying, you know, why isn't there a prescription for music when we know that that helps? And, you know, if some of these things were combined together, I, I just, I don't know, to me, my, my gut, my intuition, my heart, maybe it's just wishful thinking says, you know, we might see more increases because a lot of these social management type things, my understanding is changes the physiology in the body, and maybe with that change could trigger some other things 
with the with the pharma medications. What are your thoughts on something like that? I know it's way out of the box, and maybe you think I'm wacky. No, it's not way out of the box, and I don't think you're wacky. And as a matter of fact, a colleague of mine for many years, Dr. Peter Whitehouse, who used to be at the Cleveland Clinic, one of the top Alzheimer's researchers ever, he is now of the opinion that these other interventions, plus some pharmacologic management, are going to be the real way of moving forward. I, I think that in many ways, Peter doesn't even look at Alzheimer's as a disease anymore, even though I still do. I think he looks at it as a state, a state mm-hmm. of being. And so social development, music therapy, dancing, art, anything that stimulates the brain and keeps people socially active is definitely beneficial. In the earliest years of developing symptom management treatment, what we learned was that patients got better just by being in a clinical trial. And they got better because they had direct social interaction with the staff. They were going through cognitive testing that was stimulating their brains. And they were getting so much more attention. If you think about what has happened during the pandemic, especially in the earliest stages of the pandemic when we were all very much shut down, you had healthy people in their mid-20s who didn't know what day of the week it was and Mm -hmm. didn't know what time they needed to go anywhere. But extrapolate that to an elderly population where people were sort of shunted aside and not paid attention to. And that's, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see older people who are less mobile, who aren't getting a lot of mental stimulation and attention, and they are withdrawing into themselves and are less capable of functioning. This is a natural thing. Where you see this being taken quite seriously is, is in countries other than the U.S., where national health care is a priority. The Nordic con- uh, countries are very uh, committed to this. If you go into Finland and Sweden and Denmark, you will see that they have major programs to keep people busy as much as possible. There was one large study that they did in Finland, again, showing that across roughly 2,000 patients, that they were able to slow down what was measured as disease progression just by virtue of having a stimulating social environment and keeping them active. And you can take that analogy and stretch it all the way back to the science. Because in point of fact, every time you make your neurons in your brain fire, you make them stronger. Just like when you exercise or do weight training, you make your muscles stronger. Everything you can do to keep your brain neurons firing keeps them stronger. Well, and that makes sense. And I I think I would add two other things that that people got out of, you know, the direct interaction and the the cognitive support and stuff would be hope and purpose. You know, the hope hope alone, I think, can change our whole mindset and feeling purposeful, if not for me, for the next guy, I'm doing something about this, I think are huge factors. I I truly believe that's why my mom lived 30 years, you know, with this disease when people were saying, well, you know, five to seven, five to seven, you know, and then they got up to mm-hmm. 11 years. And, and I'm like, you know, her, her, she lived a really, a, a, you know, a, a pretty good life, you know, the majority of that time. It, it wasn't what she dreamed of. It wasn't, you know, what uh, she aspired, you know, to have as far as a life, but she was engaged. Um, she she felt purposeful, 
um, until probably the last three years when the disease really took over and, you know, things were very, very limited for her. But um, I just think that there's, I just think those things are so much more powerful than we give them credit for. And I think we live in a society, and again, I'm categorizing here, so take me with a grain of salt, guys, but where people just, they want a pill. Just give me a pill. I don't want to put in any work. I don't want to have to change my ways. I don't want to have to adapt. I don't, I don't want to have to accept or change my routine. I want to live my life and give me a pill so they're okay. And, you know, it, it saddens me because I think there are such great lessons within this disease to teach us to not only care better for someone else, but to care better for ourselves and get our priorities in life. Um, in order. And again, that's, that's, you know, my take on this, but I, I, um, I know, I know, uh, Peter Whitehouse and, um, you know, I just, I just think that there's a, a magical equation in there, in there somewhere, but let's get, let's get back to your, your company. And mm-hmm. why don't you tell us, you know, what you guys are up to and what leading drug candidates you have and, you know, how's that going to change the world for us? Okay, well, thank you for asking about that. Our company is dedicated toward mostly symptom management treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And we do have a lead compound that has been through phase phase two testing, which phase two testing is what I call proof of concept. In other words, you put the drug into people, always randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, so that the science is really superb and very rigorous that's been through that kind of testing and it was found that the drug improves cognition and it improves global function and it's extremely well tolerated. So since those results have been, have come in, we're now planning the phase three trials and the phase three trials are what are necessary in order to take the product to the market. So what this drug does, it's it's developed to be used in combination therapy. So in other words, you want a patient who is already stable on Aricept or Dinepazil. You want a patient who is already stable on that drug and is already receiving benefit from it. What Dinepazil does is it protects the neurotransmitter that our brain releases. There is a lot going on in our brain. All those proteins, whether it's beta amyloid or tau or other proteins, there is a lot going on in our brains. And So usually in a young brain, for a neurotransmitter to jump from one neuron to the other, it can be relatively simple. But in an aged brain where you have a lot of protein accumulation, inflammatory mediators, other things, that transmission is less straightforward and it takes a bit longer. Our bodies have a feedback mechanism that when a neurotransmitter is released, that very quickly it's degraded to avoid overstimulating us. And an example I use is if, Lori, if you've ever sort of um, taken out an unwelcome insect by spraying it with bug spray, uh, you know that the end stage result for that that insect is not pleasant. They're Mm -hmm. moving around quite erratically, and that's because they're short-circuiting. And if we didn't have our own built-in mechanisms for stopping our neurotransmitters from doing their job, we would look sort of like those insects and we would short circuit ourselves. So our body takes care of us and makes sure just enough transmission 
gets out there that we can think, that we can remember, that we can execute on tasks and functions. As we get older and that protein accumulates, our neurotransmitters need more protection in order to be able to get to where they're going and keep the message going to keep potentiating neurotransmission. And that's what dimethazole does. When the neurotransmitter is released, it protects it and helps it get to where it needs to go so that we can continue to think and function. All right, so that's dimethazole. What our drug does, our drug works at what's called a presynaptic receptor. And so that means the receptor that's releasing the neurotransmitter to begin with. And our drug actually facilitates helping that neurotransmitter to release more, more of it. So that presynaptic neuron is going to release more neurotransmitter than it did before. All that protein is still going to be collected in the brain, and we still need to get the message through to the other side. And that's where denepazole comes in and continues to help. So we, it's sort of like if you were filling um, your kitchen sink and you turn the tap on harder and the, the kitchen sink will fill faster. So our drug turns the tap on harder. So we release more t- neurotransmitter and then we still have denepazole there to protect the neurotransmitter. So by definition, that means we can add on to the effect. We can have more neurotransmitter that gets to the other side of a synapse and transmits the message. So what we produce is an additive effect. Okay. And this is what we saw in our phase two trials. Those who were taking denepazole, their effect was still there. But when you layered in our drug, you, there was an improvement in cognition that was measurable and that was robust and significant. But also uh, in the global function category, and I'm not sure how much you know about how that's measured in a clinical trial, but the people who measure that are completely isolated from everything that's going on in the trial other than interviews they have with the patient and caregiver. So if, if in their private interviews they think a patient is better, that's a highly meaningful observation. And in this particular phase two study, Uh, twice as many patients were considered to be significantly better and improved when they were on our therapy and not just an episode alone. Wow. So this is what we're taking forward. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it for sure. But this is is my passion. This is what I have committed my life to since I've been in pharma is continuing to follow up on helping people be as functional as possible as long as possible. I want patients to be able to stay home, to not have to go into nursing facilities. I want them to be able to be around their family members, to occasionally remember what's going on and to be able to celebrate their life. And when you're able to sort of improve on what denepazole does. I mean, think about your own mom. You were lucky enough to have her with you for 30 years, and only three of them were, were not, not good ones. Mm-hmm. So just try to think about adding to that and maybe allowing her more time to be at a higher level of function and how much that would have meant to you and to her. Oh, and this definitely. is what we're after with our drug. Wonderful. So are you going to be taking this to a phase three then trial to be able to to launch that then? Is that how that works? 
Yes, we are. We're hoping to get that process started in 2023. So we're building up all the infrastructure to support those trials as well as possible. Uh, we will have uh, portals where patient can, patients can go to get information about them on our website sometime in the middle of 2023. And we will do our best to help people find us, for us to find them, and to move them into these trials. And they never have to give up their denepazil. They will always be able to keep that. It's just that, that they have the possibility in the placebo-controlled trials of getting our drug, too. And after we finish those double-blind placebo-controlled trials, our policy, and this was my policy with Aricept as well, to always have open-label long-term extensions so that people, in exchange for their contribution to our controlled trial program, have an opportunity to receive the drug in an open-label setting for as long as they want to until the drug is available in market. We did that with Aricept, and I can tell you I had patients that stayed with me from phase two all the way through phase three. Some of them were with us for five years or more after the double-blind trial. We learned a lot about them. We learned about their families. Uh, we learned about the safety of the drug over the long term. We're going to do that with our, our lead compound, which is called AD101. We'll be doing that with AD101 as well. It's a commitment, and it's a partnership that we make with the patients, with their families, and with our company. That's nice because, you know, um, that is something that I have heard from people. It's like, well, we did it, and, and now we kind of fell back. You know, we, we saw some progress, and, and mm -hmm. the trial is over with. So that's, that's really nice um, of, of you guys to do that. Um, what are some near-term goals? You know, do you have other ones um, other than I know this is huge, just getting this to phase three in, in 2023? That That is the near-term goal and what our whole focus is. Uh, we have other candidates that are in discovery. Uh, those take a little bit less time and energy because we're still trying to figure out, okay, exactly how do they do what they do? Where would we position that uh, for these patients? Would this be a late-stage intervention or an early-stage intervention? That all goes on in the background. But this, this uh, advancing this lead compound, this is primarily our goal, and we okay. think it's, it's an important one. Yeah, well, and to stay focused is, you know, um, is fantastic. I, I know people will be excited to hear about this. That's for sure. Well, let's talk about, you know, November is World Alzheimer's um, Disease Awareness Month. Why don't you give us some some words of, of wisdom and hope for people and their families that are, are living with this disease? I would say to be optimistic, uh, don't let the, the big confusion and polarization around Biogen's launch dissuade you from looking at, at other therapies that are going to be coming in and that, that will receive the same type of approval that Biogen faced. They may end up being cheaper and something that's more affordable for uh, Medicare, Medicaid services and payers. So keep up with that research when you can. Read, read what's in your local newspaper or uh, what you can find on the web. Stay, stay optimistic about that. Uh, follow us. Uh, you know what our website is, Lori, but our hashtag is memories are worth fighting for. 
And we believe memories are worth fighting for, and that's what we're going to do every day. And the other one is everyone knows someone, because even if it's not touched our own family, everybody knows someone who has been impacted by the disease. Continue to be optimistic, continue to be active. Uh, As part of the World Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month, uh, we will be presenting uh, three scientific presentations at the Clinical Trials for Alzheimer's Disease annual meeting, and that's going to be in San Francisco right at the end of November. And within our company on World Alzheimer Day, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, we had a large meeting within our company to, again, raise awareness and uh, try to ensure that your local healthcare authorities Realize that every time you provide for a patient with Alzheimer's disease, every time you offer them more opportunities to exercise their mind, to feel a camaraderie with others, and you do this for caregivers as well, every time you do this, you make life better. And this is the whole idea. There is hope. There are things that are coming down the development pipeline. But don't forget how important social stimulation is, community support, Uh, keeping people active and making Mm -hmm. that commitment to keeping them active. Don't lose them out of despair. Uh, Wonderful words of wisdom. I I love that you talked about being optimistic, being hopeful. And I I love your tagline of, you know, memories are worth fighting for. It's huge. Um, and mm-hmm. that everybody knows somebody. You know, this is not a disease of one. This is a disease of society. And we really have to treat it like that because as individuals, we all have a ripple effect. And, you know, we can say we don't. And, you know, our decisions are only limited to ourselves, but, but they're not. Um, they do affect other other human beings on this planet. And that's just the way, that's just the way we're built. Um, and mm-hmm. so we don't know, are we going to be the next to forget or the next to be forgotten? And it's, it's important that we forge forward and learn, like you said, from, from mishaps um, and mm-hmm. controversy. There's always things to be learned to make us better, you know, stepping forward. And, um, you know, what you're doing sounds, sounds phenomenal. Um, I, I love the idea of the the add on drug to you know kind of like a kind of like a booster shot you know or an energy <laughs> drink it just kind of pushes you out there a little yes. bit more um, gives gives a little bit more life in the direction you want to go and I do appreciate you too bringing up about you know keeping active in social connections um, I, I think that that is that just makes the difference um, for everybody, yeah. for the person diagnosed, as well as, as family and professionals. Um, no matter what the stage, there are still connections there. We just might, we just might have to communicate differently. We might have to slow down a little mm-hmm. bit, which, you know, from, from personal experience, I can tell you that's a good thing because I was on the, you know, I was on the hamster wheel pretty good there, you know, going pretty yeah. fast. And it made me slow down. It made me put down my phone and and realize the world will still turn, even if I don't answer a call in two seconds and things like that. Um, but don't give up on your relationships just because someone has an illness. I mean, look at look at what, what has happened with cancer and heart disease and 
you know, diabetes and, I mean, so many other things. Um, we just, in the, the realm of dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, we're just catching up. Um, but we need funding. We need people to talk about this. We, we need support in order to move, to move the, the needle forward. So um, this has just been a, a fascinating conversation, and I so appreciate uh, the time that you've given us today and, and the insights have been, have been fabulous. I, I always learn on these shows, and, um, I, you know, I love my job because I, I get to talk to so many interesting people doing just fabulous, fabulous things in the world. So, again, thank you for all you're doing. I do want to um, just note that people can find you on your website, and I'm going to spell that, which is A-M-Y-R-I-A-D Therapeutics dot com and we have that on the links for the radio show and the blog and everything we push out you're also on twitter at a-m-y-r-i-a-d and then it looks like an under uh under slash and then t-x and then you are also on linkedin by the company name so very easy to access i would imagine that there's like a newsletter or something people could sign up for if they wanted more information on the site. Is that correct? Or is there, um, or if they want to be a prospective um, trial participant, is there anything out on the site at this point? I know it's a ways away yet. We don't send out a newsletter. We do post our news regularly on the website. So it's always good to come back. Uh, when we're ready to start uh, recruiting for the clinical trial, we will have patient facing uh, pages on our website to assist with that will also be on clintrials.gov as well. Uh, but we try to, we're, we're creating a lot more in the way of resources so that people, when they do come to us, they're not just limited to learning about us and our trial, but hopefully that we'll provide other useful information for them and other resources that they can look to. I did want to mention one, one more thing, um, Lori, and that mm-hmm. has to do with activism. And there are many times I get frustrated when there is a resistance to a payor to provide for a treatment for an Alzheimer patient. Mm-hmm. In cancer chemotherapy, which you also referenced, mm-hmm. looking at an increased survival of one month is considered to be a huge victory. And so I think, well, if you've got an Alzheimer patient and you're able to provide more function for six months, a year, two years, that should have value, but unless people start being sort of activists, start squawking about it, basically, it mm-hmm. may not happen because payers really don't like to deal with chronic diseases, and we're talking about old people, and so they're even less likely to want to deal with providing treatment. That's wrong. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. just flat out wrong, and I think we can all be advocates for the care of Alzheimer's patients. And that means talking to payers, talking to the government officials, making sure that your voice gets heard in your community and across the country. Oh, I, I so agree with you on that. Um, and that's really kind of why I got into this whole, um, I, I'll call it a mess, because it really, I felt like it was a mess. <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like products and tools. I didn't think that people really even knew what families were going through. 
um, in a lot of situations. So, you know, voices have been lifted, both um, both those diagnosed and families, but gosh, everyone's voice needs to be heard at every level because, again, we're all intertwined. We see things differently. We have different ideas. And to me, that's that's kind of the the broth of creativity is when we when we speak our honest truth and aren't aren't afraid of it because we can't get answers if we don't know the true issues at hand mm-hmm. and and I loved when you brought up you know about cancer you know if they get an extra month out of here that's considered great being able to leverage comments like that and put it in perspective because a lot of us don't know those you know, different things in different areas and stuff and how they're, how they're valued. And, um, you know, it's, uh, we've got, we've got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of room for improvement, I guess I'll put it that way. And every voice matters and every voice can make a difference, big or small, and don't ever underestimate yourself in, in what you can do. Um, I would invite you guys when you're ready to become part of um, Dementia Map under our trials uh, section there. It's free, um, you know, or if you want a paid version, we have that as well. Um, but, it, you know, we need to connect people to trials and we need people to believe in trials. Otherwise, we're not going to move the ball forward. And it really is a combination of care and cure that we have to move hand in hand together. We can't we can't give up one for the other, in in my opinion. And um, you know, so we hit a bump in the road, you know, with a trial. Let's learn. Let's not let's not give up um, on this. Uh, this sounds really promising. What you guys are doing. So again, thank you so much um, for your for your time and being with us. Um, it's uh, it's just been a privilege to talk with you, Sharon, and I wish you guys the best of luck. And as you move forward, and you know, maybe come back on the show when your when your trials are ready. You know, when you're ready to launch and, and pull people in, we'd love to have you back. Okay. I thank you. Yes, I thank you for that invitation, and I'm just going to do kudos to you, Lori, because you provide you provide help for people. You provide a forum for people. And this is incredibly important. I love what you do. And it's just been a wonderful hour for me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And to our listeners, again, um, please go and uh, like, click, and share. You know, this episode, um, don't keep nuggets to yourself. We, we really have to get better at sharing and spreading the word. And then, again, go to alzheimerspeaks.com. We've got that whole section on free resources. Please pass that along to other people. Um, it, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing we can do for one another, lifting one another up, uh, keeping optimistic, giving hope, and finding purpose in our lives. Bye. Until next time.